ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد تدريبا باب قول الله تعالى قل فاتوا بالتوراه فاتلوها فم سوره ال عمران 93 وقول النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم اعطي اهل التوراه التوراه فعملوا بها واعطي اهل الانجيل الانجيل فعملوا به واعطيتم القران فعملتم به وقال وقال ابو رزين يتلونه يتبعونه ويعملون به حق عمله يقال يتلى يقرا حسن التلاوه حسن القراءه للقران لا يمسه لا يجد طعمه ونفعه الا من امن بالقران ولا يحمله بحقه الا الموقن لقوله تعالى مثل الذين حملوا التوراه ثم لم يحملوها كمثل الحمار يحمل اسفارا بئس مثل القوم الذين كذبوا بايات الله والله لا يهدي القوم الظالمين وسمى النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم الاسلام والايمان عملا قال ابو هريره قال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم لبلال اخبرني بارجى عمل عملته في الاسلام قال ما عملت عملا ارجى عندي اني لم اتطهر الا صليت وسئل اي العمل افضل قال ايمان بالله ورسوله ثم الجهاد ثم حج مبرور this chapter now then it mentions a lengthy title quoting several parts which will go through slowly in the explanation but it is regarding the recitation of the quran the recitation of the quran as a sheikh al-thaymin mentions is of two types there are two types of reciting the quran one which is mentioned as tilawah lafziyah wa tilawat ittiba' tilawah lafziyah and then the tilawah ittiba' the first type the tilawah lafziyah fadahiruha an yuqra an yaqra al-insan al-quran وهذا يقال تلا القران the recitation in words is basically that a person reads the quran and it would be said that he is reciting the quran so one recitation of the quran is the obvious recitation that you read it 
and you recite it. Read and recite the words you are reading and reciting the Quran. That is the obvious reciting of the Quran. But what is then the other form of recitation of the Quran? As Shaykh Al-Thameen he says, it is what tilawatu tabiyyah هي أن يتبع القرآن تصديقا بأخباره وامتهالا لأحكامه The second type of recitation of the Quran is essentially the following of the Quran that you follow and abide by what is in the Quran that you believe in all of what the Quran informs us of that you implement and abide by the rulings of the Qur'an. وَهَذَا هُوَ ثَمَرَةُ وَالْغَايَةُ And this is the reality of the fruits of the Qur'an. The Qur'an is not there just to be recited. It is more than that. The Qur'an, as Shaykh Al-Fawzan, Hafizahullah Ta'ala mentioned, there are five major points that a believer needs to understand in relation to himself and the Qur'an. What are those five points that a believer needs to recognize between himself and the Qur'an, the relationship of the believer to the Qur'an, Five points that I'm sure we've mentioned at some point or another regarding the hadith nasiha. One of the aspects of that hadith is وَلِكِتَابِهِ nasiha, Meaning purity to the book of Allah Then what is this purity of yours and this sincerity of yours to the Qur'an, to the book of Allah. What if somebody asked you that? You as Muslims, you have the Qur'an. You have this book, this revelation from Allah. Summarizing five bullet points, the stance of the Muslim, the understanding of the Muslim toward this book of revelation of yours. To believe in it a bit more, that it is the speech of Allah. So the first point, clearly we've been mentioning it so often, the first point regarding the believer and his understanding of the Qur'an is that you believe it is kalamullahi ghayru makhluq. It is the speech of Allah not created the speech of Allah not something created from Allah it came and to him it will return the Quran is the speech of Allah that we talked about before in this book Allah spoke the Quran and who heard it Jibreel alayhi salam 
He then came and conveyed it to the Prophet who then conveyed it to the Ummah. That is the first point. Having the correct aqidah regarding the Qur'an. Anybody asks you about the Qur'an, that is a clear and obvious point that you're going to tell them uh, regarding the believer and his understanding of the Qur'an. Then, another point from the five, that you recite the Qur'an. That is clearly another point, the believer and the Qur'an. The second point, that you recite the Qur'an. Of course, recitation of the Qur'an. And we know that there are narrations that mention the reward of reciting the Qur'an. The famous hadith, of course, regarding Alif Lam Mim, La Aqul Alif Lam Mim Harf, that when the Prophet ﷺ said that every letter of the Qur'an that you recite has Ten rewards, and then he said, I don't mean and I don't say, La aqulu alif lam mim harf. I'm not saying that when you recite alif lam mim is one letter where you get ten rewards for, but alif harf, wa lam harf, wa mim harf. Rather, alif is a letter, and lam is a letter, and mim is a letter. So when you recite Alif, Lam, Mim, that is in fact 30 rewards. And there are many other examples of narrations encouraging the recitation of the Qur'an. So that is an obvious point too. That the believer, when it comes to the Qur'an, obviously you recite the Qur'an, you read the Qur'an, and there is reward in doing so. Third point. Memorize the Qur'an, absolutely. Memorization of the Qur'an, that you memorize the Qur'an, begin at some point, maybe as is the common way with many people, you begin where? When you start memorizing. Al-Baqarah? Oh, at the back. But you said Al-Baqarah. So, you memorize, you begin with Al-Fatiha, and then many will go to Juz Amma, starting with those chapters at the back, and then building up to the longer chapters. That is a common method. There may be other methods. It's not always necessarily easier at the back. Sometimes those longer chapters, in honesty, can be a lot easier with long ayat and stories being narrated sometimes it's a lot easier than having 30 or 40 ayahs to a page so in any case that a person memorizes the Quran focuses on learning the chapters in memorized form what is the benefit of that There are specific narrations, there are specific narrations that talk about specifically the virtue of memorizing the Qur'an. 
and there are virtues mentioned of the one who has more Quran than another there are clear virtues mentioned in the Sunnah about memorization of the Quran was it here last week we were talking about the Hafiz who uh, revises his Quran that uh, young brother used to know memorize the Quran and he used to revise it every six days three juz after Fajr every day two juz in the evening after Isha every day five practiced for that day same next day same next day same next day and in six days he's revised the full Quran and then on the seventh day can go back to begin with the first five juz again so memorizing the Quran Al-Shaykh Ali Nasr Al-Faqihi Hafizahullah Ta'ala from the elder scholars of Medina he used to say or he mentioned one time that it is from the miracles of the Quran that you can never cement and solidify and finish memorization of the Quran he said there's no such thing no such thing as saying okay I have memorized the Quran done finished he said it is from the miracles of the Quran that you constantly have to keep going back and checking and revising and practicing otherwise that memorization will not stay and he gave the example he said look at the Imams of the Haram Imams of the Haram some of them have been leading their prayer for maybe 50 years not always in the Haram but wherever it may have been Imams Hafiz Hufaz from when they were children been leading the prayers well, since the age of 8, 9, 10, 12, 15 40, 50, 60 years they've been leading the prayers maybe decades they've been leading the Taraweeh every Ramadan decades they've been leading the Taraweeh every Ramadan and yet still this year they lead the prayer and there will be the odd mistake that occurs how come you've had this Quran memorized since the age of 10 you've been reciting it maybe full every Ramadan in the Taraweeh you've been recapping it, revising it every week, every month, every year for 50 years and you come and lead the prayer and you still make a mistake Sheikh Ali Nasr he said that is from the, the miracles of the Quran to phrase it in that way that it is such you can never just finish it and leave it and put it aside you must always be going back to it always recapping it, revising it in order to maintain that memorization of it in the days of the Salaf when they used to have their classes of knowledge they used to have their gatherings of knowledge it's mentioned about some of them that they would not allow the young kids who haven't got beards they wouldn't allow the young kids who haven't got beards so the doors over there but then one of the reasons and they're interconnected stories the point is what they used to say was anybody who came to the class whether young kids or otherwise that is another example in fact it was of Abu Dawood if I recall when they did not they used to be a sheikh he used to say any anybody without a beard can't come to the class what he meant was young kids whose beards don't even grow yet 
So his point was basically that young kids can't come to my class. And he phrased it as the ones who don't have any beards can't come. So young kids, obviously they don't even have any beard that grows. So they couldn't come. But then it's mentioned how a young child at that time from his superior level of memorization was brought into the class. His beard didn't grow yet. Nothing. Baby face. And still, because, uh, because of his memorization and his level of ability, when that was shown to the sheikh, then it became clear that this young student has a superior ability. And then he allowed him to enter. The point here though was, in the times of the Salaf when they used to have classes, if somebody new walked into the class, one day they have somebody new walks into the class. So then the Shaykh would say to that person, have you memorized all of the Qur'an? To this new attendee. He would say, have you memorized all of the Qur'an, the new attendee? If that new attendee said not yet, then it would be said in our phrase of the day, there's the door. They would tell them, go, memorize the Qur'an, finish it, then you can come and attend my classes. That's what they used to do. It's mentioned about the Salaf. Memorization of the Qur'an is the key to all of knowledge. Everything we discuss, all of the evidences, they come from the Qur'an, the ayat of the Qur'an, and then the sunnah. The Qur'an is the basis for all of these affairs. So they used to say to them, go and memorize. When you've finished it, you've memorized it, then come back and you can attend the classes. The Salaf, they used to have what they call the Katatib, where the young children, from a young age, they would be sent to what is now recognized like the circles, the halaqat. Like in the haram, you go now in Medina, you see all of those circles of children sitting around the teacher next to every pole, every uh, uh, pillar. They're sitting with their classes. Those types of things, they used to occur at the time of the Salaf. And it was recognized, a standard practice, standard practice. You send your kids to one of those classes. They sit there from a young age and they memorize the Qur'an. When you look now at the biographies of the scholars, you read the books of biographies. Sira Alam al Nubala, you read maybe the Ilm al-Rijal books. Various books of biographies of the scholars. When you read the biographies, often a common uh, trait that you find in many of the scholars, it will say in their biography, he memorized the Qur'an when he was 8, when he was 10. Qabl al-Bulugh, before he got to the age of puberty. How many biographies do you read where you see that all the time? In their biographies mentioned, they were half of at the age of 8, 7, 10. So the third point is the memorization of the Qur'an. What we talked about before, the shanaqitah, 100, 100, 100, 100, that type of thing applies. They have all different types of techniques. People often always ask questions. What's the best way to memorize the Qur'an? What is the best technique? What is the best time? It all varies from different people between different people. Of course, no doubt there are the narrations and the barakah of the early morning time. But a person, especially in the UK in the winter days, if a person is sleeping after Fajr in the winter days, 
then uh, what do we do with them? Sleeping now in winter after Fajr. So after Fajr in that early morning time, when your brain is fresh and your mind is fresh, then that is a good time. And the scholars, they often speak about the barakah of the morning. So that is a good time, generally speaking. It may not always work for everybody with the way that life is these days and duties and responsibilities and children and school and work and various things. Maybe it doesn't work. But if that is possible, it is something recommended by the scholars, the early morning time. And you see uh, uh, something special about that time. Your mind at that time, it is different to the rest of the day, no doubt. No doubt. Because you wake up at that time now, your mind has not been focused on this and that and talking to this one, ringing that one, messaging this one. You wake up fresh, blank. And your mind goes straight into this Qur'an or to this work or this revision. There is something definitely different at that time. So maybe that is something for the ones who are able. And if you're not, then you work out whatever times you can, evening, afternoon. One of the good things about memorizing early in the day, early on, early morning after Fajr, morning time before war, is that then for the rest of the day, wherever you are, driving to work, driving to the shops, doing this, doing that, for the rest of the day you can be practicing those few ayat that you memorized in the morning. For the rest of the day you carry on practicing it. And this is how the students are. In Medina, for example, you walk from your room to the masjid for the prayer. And that could be maybe a five-minute walk from where the halls of residence used to be to the campus masjid, Masjid Ibn Baz. It was a few minutes walk. Some of the distant campus areas, maybe seven, eight minutes walk sometimes. So that walk, you don't just walk doing nothing. You don't just walk that seven minutes to the mosque or in the morning from your dormitory to the, to the university building, which was maybe seven, eight, nine minutes or so. You don't just walk those distances doing nothing, just looking around. Those are seven minutes where you're going to be practicing your memorization. Seven minutes where you're going to be reading your poems that you're memorizing. You're going to be reading the Quran ayat you've been memorizing. You're going to be reading your hadith you've been memorizing. People used to be walking with books. It was rare to see any student walking without a book. The serious students, you got seven minutes there, seven minutes back, 14 minutes. 14 minutes, you can memorize three, four hadith in 14 minutes. So the option or the, 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 the possibility and the opportunity for memorization is a lot if you utilize it. Imagine now the people who drive and you have to drive to work and here and there. What is going on whilst you're driving in your car for about 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour maybe. An hour there, an hour back. So much time there to utilize in memorization and revision. So if a person really put their mind to it, there is a lot of what you may call dead time during the day. That should not be dead time. In the morning you're driving to work, it takes you half an hour, half an hour back. That is one hour of dead time. That should not be dead time. That should be time utilized. 
even the simplest of things you have to go do your chore pick up the shopping from Tesco it's a five minute drive there half an hour wandering around picking things up all of that is dead time if you don't do anything with it but you could be again in all of that time from the minute you leave your house to driving there to getting out to walking around picking everything up driving back in all of that time you could be revising your Quran to yourself quietly all that time Kuffar are there singing their songs as they're going everywhere with their headphones on and singing. You revise your Quran in all of that time, there and back, your ahadith in all of that time. There is a lot of time that people have not realized is time to be utilized. We used to see students there in the, the take in the, the restaurant with their book. You have your book if you're eating by yourself, nobody's accompanying you. You're by yourself, you have your book. They used to have the books out there. And then you plate here and you're looking at your book as you're eating. Whilst you're eating, you're looking at your book. And then you flick your page and you carry on eating. You remember that narration from one of the scholars of the past. He, it mentions in his biography, to save time, he used to eat bread with water or some similar items to that. But he didn't used to eat the bread and then drink the water. He used to squash that bread into the water. Squash it all up into the water. Bread and water, what do you think? No? Try it this week, tell us next week, what do you think? So bread and water, squashed up, drink it. They said to him, how come? Eat the bread, eat it separate, and then drink your water. He said, but if I eat the bread, take a bite, take another bite, then pick up the water, then take another bite. How long is that going to take me to finish that bread? Isn't it a lot quicker? Just squash it all up, gulp it down, you're finished. Same amount of food gone into your body, you just gulped it down in one go. Save yourself time. So the point is that third section is memorization of the Quran. Fourth point. Pondering over the Qur'an, we've had so far the correct aqeedah, having the correct aqeedah with regards to the Qur'an, reading the Qur'an, memorizing the Qur'an, pondering over it, and therefore, understanding it. So the fourth point is, clearly you need to understand the Qur'an, ponder over it, and understand it. That is the fourth point. Pondering over it and understanding it. It is not enough just to be reading it or even to just be reading it and memorizing it if you don't understand it. Understanding is obviously the key behind the revelation. You need to understand the revelation. If you do not understand what is in the Qur'an, but you've memorized it, as is the way of the people today, that they memorize large sections of the Qur'an, even maybe all of the Qur'an. But those people who've done that don't actually understand the Qur'an. If you ask them, are you half of? So explain to me then a simple chapter from Juz Amma. Explain to me briefly then what does Qul Huwa Allahu Ahad mean this chapter? They don't know. 
You say to them, explain to me briefly then since you're half of what this means or that means and they don't know. So memorization, reading, all of those points we mentioned. But with that understanding, because with understanding will come the fifth point, which is acting upon it. Acting upon what the Quran says. How are you going to do what the Quran tells you to do if you do not understand what it is telling you to do? And really all of those, they come together. So of course you have the correct aqidah. Then you read it. You also put time aside to memorize it. You also obviously understand because that helps you with your memorization of it. One of the biggest things that will help you with memorizing the Qur'an is understanding what you're actually memorizing. If you understand what you're memorizing, that will significantly improve your ability to memorize. We mentioned before, I'm sure again, there were students we know, they could finish a brand new page of the Qur'an memorized in their head now such that they can close it and read it off in less than 10, 15, 20 minutes. Less than, less than 20, definitely. 20 is pushing it to the maximum. In 20 minutes, a brand new page, easily done. 10 minutes it could be done. Because you understand the Arabic language, so everything you're reading on that page, you understand it. You understand which ayah or the first ayah, where it stopped, and then what the next ayah began with saying. Then you recognize the third ayah, it began with talking about such and such. And the fourth ayah began with such and such. You remember the meanings of what each ayah was talking about. And that's why with the longer chapters at the beginning, it's very easy. When you know Arabic, you understand what's being said from the Mus'haf, in the longer chapters, you got maybe four ayat on a page, maybe five ayat on a, on a page of the typical Uthmani Mus'haf. You know Arabic, you remember what those ayat are with the meanings of it. You remember the first ayah was talking about this and that, you remember the second ayah was about this and that, so even if you forget after the first ayah, your remembering of the meaning of what was next encourages you to then remember what was there definitely without a shadow of a doubt and that's why arabic is important there is no doubt about it all of the young children now it should be a standard that they try to learn arabic for the elders who didn't have that opportunity as we grew up and then it was learned at a later stage but for the children now should be part of that upbringing part of that schedule to learn the Arabic language and when memorizing chapters of the Quran to have an understanding of what that chapter is talking about all of that will aid in the ability to memorize properly so understanding and then acting upon the Quran are the fourth and the fifth points that's why the Shaykh Ta'ala mentioned the impermissibility of having these big posters and frames in your homes with the Qur'an written on them with the four quls as they say written on them with ayatul kursi written on them and then beautiful decorations and a beautiful frame 50 pounds, 60 pounds, 100 pounds for this beautiful frame with 
some chapters of the Quran in it. Impermissible. As Shaykh Al-Afameen said, you cannot hang these decorative frames up. Why? Because that decoration, that frame with the Quran written in it, none of these five aspects apply to it. A decorative frame, what's that got to do with your aqidah in the Quran? A decorative frame, that's not where you're going to stand in your living room every day and recite the Quran from. That's not where you're going to start memorizing the Quran from. People say, but if it's in my house, I'll see it all the time and memorize it. It's not true. You're not going to memorize the Quran like that. And even if you do, how much are you going to memorize like that? Two pages, three pages worth all together from those posters? So those posters are not implementing these five points. They are not implementing understanding your aqidah from a poster on the wall. You don't read from the poster on the wall. You don't memorize from the poster on the wall. You don't learn the meanings from the poster on the wall. You don't act upon that. You don't ponder upon that. The whole point of it being a hundred pound frame is for it to look good. Why is it a hundred pounds otherwise? It is for the purpose of decoration. That's why they make them with the intent of decoration in your homes. And decoration, you will have noticed, was not one of the five points. So, as Shaykh al said here, that reciting the Qur'an is two types. Reciting the Qur'an is of two types. Tilawah lafziyah and tilawat ittiba'ah. One is just the normal reading and one is the pondering and practicing of it. Just like it's mentioned in that famous narration of the Salaf regarding the Qur'an, when they said, كُنَّا لَا نَتَجَاوَزُ عَشْرَ آيَاتٍ مِّنَ الْقُرْآنِ حَتَّى نَعْلَمَ مَعَانِيهَا وَنَعْمَلَ بِهَا That we never used to go past ten ayat of the Qur'an until we knew the meanings and we acted upon them. And that is very similar to what they used to say about hadith that they used to understand the meaning of a hadith and then go and implement it. And they used to say, by implementing the hadith, it would aid us in keeping it memorized. Al-Imam Ahmad, he said, فَتَعَلَّمْنَا الْعِلْمَ وَالْعَمَلَ جَمِيعًا Or statements of the Salaf to that nature, that we learned and memorized and acted upon it altogether. تعلمنا العلم والعمل جميعا We learned the knowledge and how to act upon it and implement it all together. So, that is regarding this opening section. A while ago, in Oxford it was, there was a small event we had there and it was about the history of the Qur'an how it was initially compiled together, how Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu compiled all of the Qur'an in his house, and then what happened at the time of Uthman, and when the battles were occurring, and the memorizers were being killed, a history of how the Qur'an was maintained in the early days and compiled into the Mus'haf that we now know, that lecture is very good to get the history of the Qur'an from. 
So maybe you can search for that and have a look at how it was all put together and what events occurred at that time. Here then it mentions نعم, so the, the fruits of acting upon the, of the Quran are to act upon it, to do your deeds upon it. And it mentions here that Abu Rizim said, يَتَلُونَهُ حَقَّ that they recite it upon the actuality of reciting. Meaning, that they follow it. They don't just recite it without understanding or practicing it. They recite it and they follow what is in it. They act upon it with the reality and actuality of how it needs to be acted upon. That is the opening. Then the second section, La Yamasuhu, i.e. La Yajidu Ta'amahu wa Naf'ahu illa man amana bil Qur'an wa la yahmiluhu bihaqqihi illa al-muqim that nobody will find the reality of the Qur'an and the benefit of the Qur'an except those who purely believe and have Iman in the Qur'an. That is what we said last time, Hudan lil muttaqeen that the Qur'an is a guidance for the pious, for the righteous, even though the Qur'an is of course a guidance for all of mankind, but those who believe, then they are the ones who truly benefit from it. Otherwise, those who do not believe and do not have certainty in it, Iman in it, then they don't benefit from it. فَعَمَلْتُمْ بِهِ uh, This is talking about the first section uh, regarding the Torah that they were given the Torah, the Jews were given the Torah, and the Christians were given the Injil, the Bible, and that the Muslims, they were given the Qur'an, فَعَمِلْتُمْ بِهِ and that you acted upon it. سَمَّا التَّمَسُّكَ بِالتَّورَاتِ وَالْإِنْجِيلِ وَالْقُرْآنِ عَمَلًا وَسَمَّا التَّورَاتَ وَالْإِنْجِيلَ وَالْقُرْآنَ إِتَاءً وَهَذَا كَمَا ذَكَرْنَا يَدُلُّ عَلَىٰ أَنَّ ذَلِكَ مِنْ فِعْلِ الْعَبْدَ لِأَنَّ الْعَمَلَ بِالتَّورَاتِ يَشْمَلْ تِلَاوَةَ التَّورَاتِ وَكَذَلِكَ الْإِنْجِيلِ وَكَذَلِكَ الْقُرْآنِ وَقَوْلُهُ نعم The point here is linked to the whole section we're discussing here regarding the actions of the servants that here acting upon the Qur'an or previously acting upon the Torah, acting upon the Injil, you acting upon them is your actions you're doing. You acting upon it is your actions that you are doing. And maybe, maybe when we finish this, we can do a few sessions, three or four sessions, maybe five, maybe, we'll see on the topic of the decree in terms of the actions of the servant. That is an extended topic we typically don't do, but if maybe there is time we can have a look at that because 
such a large section here is devoted to that so then it says قُلْ فَأْتُوا بِالتَّوْرَاتِ فَتُلُوهَا هَذِهِ الْآيَةِ نَزَلَتْ عِنْدَ قَوْلِهِ تَعَالَى كُلُّ الطَّعَامِ كَانَ حِمَّا لِبَنِي إِسْرَائِيلَ إِلَّا مَا حَرَّمَ إِسْرَائِيلُ عَلَى نَفْسِهِ مِنْ قَبْلِ أو مِنْ قَبْلِ أَنْ تُنَزَّلَ التَّوْرَاتِ قُلْ فَأْتُوا بِالتَّوْرَاتِ فَتُلُوهَا المقصود من ذلك تكذيب اليهود في منعهم النسخ فإن هذا صريح في النسخ كل الطعام كان حلا لبني إسرائيل إلا ما حرم إسرائيل على نفسه من قبل أن تنزل التوراة قل فأتوا بالتوراة فحرم على نفسه شيئا ثم نزلت التوراة بحله وهذا يدل على أن النسخ جائز عقلا وواقع شرعا This is just a background to this particular ayah how the Jews they rejected abrogation could occur and then this example was given to them how they made something haram upon themselves then the Torah was revealed indicating its permissibility indicating therefore abrogation can occur and it does occur and there are of course examples clearly in Islam of abrogation because remember the religion all of the Quran the Sunnah wasn't revealed in one go it was revealed over a period of 23 years and so some of the rulings in the early times may have differed from the rulings that came later in the latter times i.e. those latter rulings would abrogate the earlier rulings and there are many proven examples in the sunnah obviously to prove an example you have to prove the timings which one came after which in terms of the chronological revelation but there are examples the example of visiting the graveyards originally in Islam it was impermissible to go and visit graveyards it was mentioned in the hadith I used to prohibit you from going to the graves but rather visit them because they remind you of the afterlife so the hadith is very clear that the prophet used to forbid them and prohibit them from visiting the graveyards but then he tells them now go and visit them and the scholars have explained because in the early stages of Islam when people were entering into Islam they had just left all of their shirk and grave worship and what they used to do those kinds of activities so in the early stages of Islam all of those doors were shut until the aqidah became ingrained into the people when the aqidah the tawheed it became properly established into the hearts of the believers then the Prophet said you can visit the graves now for it reminds you of the afterlife 
That is, of course, for the men and for the women. Is it permissible for the women to visit graveyards? No. Never, ever. Just once. Okay. So there is a difference of opinion about the women, and what is that? So it shouldn't be something they do regularly, so your fatwa is that they can go sometimes. They can go sometimes, but not regularly. Is that what it is? Ah. They have to it? Not as often as the mills. So you're saying women can go to the graveyards, but not as often as mills. Naam, we have a naam, naam coming over here. You have agreement in the house. Anybody else? With the finger movement as well. Women cannot go to the graveyard. Anyone else? So you have a difference of opinion on that. One opinion is exactly that. Women cannot. One opinion says women cannot go to graveyards. Impermissible. But there is another opinion that says women can go, but only, as we say now, in a blue moon. In a very irregular fashion. Not regularly at all. Now and again. There is an opinion they can go now and again. But certainly not something as a habit or regularly at all. So two opinions. One saying they cannot go at all. And the second opinion saying they can but only now and again. And it mostly revolves around those narrations that say Allahu Zairat al qubur that Allah's curse is upon the women who visit the graveyards. But then there's another narration, Allahu Zuwarat ala Zuwarat al qubur that the curse is upon the women who regularly visit the graveyards. So Shaykh al-Albani, he said, look at that narration, it's clear in its meaning in the Arabic language. Zuwar is upon the pattern of Mubalagha. That's very specific in Arabic, Mubalagha, meaning something happens in excess. So now the curse is upon the women who go to visit graveyards in excess. Too much, always. So if they don't do that, they go now and again, they are therefore not under that threat of the hadith. So you have that opinion on that issue there. Today we digressed a lot. A lot of digression today. It's like they used to say about Al-Sheikh uh, Muhammad Al-Amin Al-Shantiti. That his students, they used to say to him, Sheikh, you know, today, I mean, what did we even do, Sheikh? I mean, so many things you talked about in the class and you told us about this and all benefits, all ahadith and narrations and all knowledge, but not exactly here. But he used to say, all this knowledge, yani what I'm teaching now, he used to say. What he had that knowledge and what he used to teach, 
He said, this is what I've gathered from my scholars and what we've learned. And he said, even if all you guys now, just one of you, at least learns everything I'm saying, then before I die, at least, he would say that at least he's passed on all of that knowledge. He's passed on all of those things. But it was known about him, of his digression. But it was also known that his digression were classes of knowledge in of themselves. His digression wasn't just stories, it was digression going on to this uh, mas'ala, this particular topic and that particular issue. And you talk about one thing and it goes on to another issue that is linked directly to that point. But today we digressed slightly, but inshallah ta'ala, uh, we'll continue and finish this narration and the sections coming up from the next session. The narrations are small now, all of them coming up. They are all barely... Uh, uh, not even a page in the explanations. The explanations are succinct and brief to the end of, to the end of the book now. So uh, inshallah we should make some good progress in the future classes to finish it off. Next week it's back on as usual uh, after Isha next week also. Ustad Abdulillah is coming. You have the full program for the weekend then. So you should try and attend as much as you can as much as you can. I mean, really, for the rest of the program, it's only beneficial if you attend all of it. Or not only, but it's really beneficial if you attend all of it. Well, what's the topic? So it's going to be like a mutton. It's going to be like a book that you go through, summarized, go through over the points of the book. So to really benefit from that properly, you have to attend all of the classes. Otherwise, you're going to get one section of the book here, one section of the book there. They're not just general lectures, they are consecutive lectures. So try and attend all of those. And then in the evening as well, on Saturday evening, we'll be back with this after Isha. It's not a, a, a blank. There's no blank after uh, Isha on Saturday. There's no holiday or vacation. I think in the last 10 years, apart from the ones that we miss because I've got other lectures somewhere or some conference somewhere or traveling somewhere, Without any of those kinds of reasons, I think there's only maybe I can count on one hand the number of times we've missed a Saturday class. I can count on one hand the number of times I've been home on a Saturday night in the last 10 years. One hand, literally, that is not an exaggeration or a joke. Every Saturday you know the routine. So inshallah ta'ala, next Saturday we're back after Isha, but remember to try and put the effort in for the full weekend all of the classes with Ustad Abdulillah also and then in the evening with this one we'll continue with this section inshallah ta'ala uh, there's a question before we round off as well then <sighs> questions about zakat there's a few different questions about zakat one is, what is the nisab value that somebody should use when paying zakat on silver or gold? Silver has its own value and gold has its own value. So what is the value for silver? How many grams? Get your Googles out quickly. How many grams for silver? How many grams for gold? Well, Google the, the values. We need the values for today. What are the gold prices today? Just to give an example. 
the gold prices today and the silver prices today so we can give an example of what today's nisab would be if you were giving zakat today what is the price of gold today pounds All right, uh, work that out into grams. What is it per gram? Because the Nisab for gold is how many grams? Eighty, some of them say, and some do say 85. But let's work off 85. So 85 grams comes to how much in pounds? Per gram. So 85. 2,000. So 3,000 roughly. It's saying upon those calculations that the price is approximately 3,000. It, it often hovers around the 2,000, 2,500, 3,000 pounds to give an actual example here now with our currency. Normally that's where it fluctuates and hovers around. 80 grams of gold. Silver, how many grams? You need the price of silver as well anyway. Most scholars they say, as you're searching, most scholars they say with gold and silver it is safer or even if not most scholars, but some of the scholars do say it is safer to give it upon the price of silver. Because the price of silver is obviously a lot less than the price of gold. If you work it off the price of gold, it means you're going to be waiting a lot longer before you start giving zakat. Whereas if, if it's on silver, then zakat is due at a lot lower level. So some of the scholars, they say you should work it off the silver for that reason because uh, zakat would be due at a much lower level. If you're working it out on gold, then perhaps all that time you're going to be waiting until you hit the nisab, the two, three thousand pounds, and you've had it for a year. Roughly that. Uh, what's the prices in grams? How does it work out? 595, some say 575, 595. And works out roughly 250. So if it was silver today, roughly it would be 250 pounds. If you've had 250 pounds for a year worth of silver uh, or cash, because cash is worked off silver and gold. You got cash, you don't have any gold. You got 10,000 pounds of cash which you've had for a year. The nisab hit a year ago. So now on that 10,000 pounds, you've got to give you a zakat. And that's going to be based on 2.5% on that 10,000 pounds. It's hit the nisab because you've worked it off the price of silver or gold. And typically it should be of silver. So how do you work out the nisab? It's 80 grams or 85 grams of gold. Work out the price of gold. Work out how much that works out in money terms. And then you can give you a 2.5% on that. Same with silver. 595 grams. Work out what a gram of silver is. How many grams have you got? Simple mathematics. 
not too complicated. And then uh, you can work out how much you have to give, 2.5% of that. How do we know the present day value on your Google phones? And do you have to stick to either silver or gold? Then, like we said, for most, for the safer opinion, it is that you start giving it upon the value of silver. If you've had 250, roughly as it works out right today, for a year, then you start giving it. What happens if you've not had it for a year? Well, let's go off the gold one for now, 3,000 pounds. Let's say you start working for the first time in your life, empty bank balance, zero in there, you start working for the first time in your life. After a few months of working, every month you get your wages, you spend some of it obviously, you keep some of it, save some of it, spend some of it. Eventually after a, a few months, your bank balance hits the 3,000 mark, goes above the 3,000 mark, as the approximate value today we worked out. And then you obviously continue spending some, saving some, spending some, saving some, but it never falls below three grand. Let's say you hit the £3,000 mark, for example, on Ramadan the 1st. So now next Ramadan the 1st, you are now due your zakat, because you hit the nisab on the 1st of Ramadan, for example, and it never fell below that for a year. It's been upon the nisab for a year, you give your 2.5% now on what you have altogether. That's the easiest way with wages. Because obviously, at that moment in time, you may have 8,000 in your account now. But the last 1,000, <coughs> or the last two or 3,000, hasn't had a year go by on it yet. But the Shaykh said, the Shaykh al the easiest thing with wages, at that time of the year, from the point of your nisab hitting, a year later, whatever you've got, just give you 2.5 on it. Next year, if you've maintained the nisab, whatever you've got, just give you 2.5 on it. You don't have to start working out, but that amount of salary is less than a year that came in eight months ago, nine months ago. You don't have to do any of that. Just give it on what you've got. But what if now on the first of Ramadan you hit that £3,000 mark? And then six months later, you go buy yourself a new car and you fall down to one and a half thousand pounds. And then you carry on saving, saving, working, spending. And then it hits 3,000 again before the first of Ramadan the next year. You hit 3,000, the nisab, the value that you have to pay zakat on now, on the first of Ramadan, uh, 2019. Now in December you go buy a car, and so your savings drop below the nisab. But then you carry on working and saving, and by next Ramadan the first, you're back up above the nisab. So from the point of it hitting to the point of a year going, you are above the nisab. But in between you did fall below. What's the ruling now? So after you bought the car and it fell below 3,000 and you were at one and a half and then it took you another three months until you hit that 3,000, you're saying your year starts fresh from that date there. As a guess. Anybody else? Mm -hmm. That is correct. 
that you simply start again from when you hit the nisab. Because the point is, you have to have the nisab for a year. If you fell down below it, then it's broken. Now when you hit it again, you start your year. And if you maintain it for a year, then zakat is due. But if it falls again for some other reason in between, you start again when you hit the nisab. What about women then who have gold? A woman, for example, is married, she has no money, physical money, cash in her bank account. No bank account, nothing. Married, husband takes care of all of the affairs and the income, but she has gold. She has 10 grand worth of gold from when she got married, obviously. So now all of that gold, 10 grand, is obviously above the nisab. She has to give zakat or not. She has no money, actual money, bank account zero, doesn't even have a bank account. But she's got this 10 grand worth of gold. Zakat is due or not on her? Absolutely it's due on her. How is she going to give it? Give the gold? What cash? Tell the husband to pay for it, mashaAllah. Your name? Ah. So... Oh, that's another issue there, yeah. yeah. There's an issue about whether you have to give zakat on gold that you actually wear or not, but that's definitely not starting now. So, uh, on the gold, if a woman has gold only, no money, no actual money, and the gold is above the nisab, then zakat is due. She's had it for a year, zakat is due. Yes, her husband, if he happens to be like the noble brother, can pay on her behalf. He can pay that zakat that is due for her. He can pay it from his money. If he's not as noble as this brother, and he can't do it, and he doesn't want to do it, whatever reason or circumstance, and she needs to do it herself, she doesn't have any money. So now what are her options? Either she sells a little bit of the gold, an earring here or a bracelet there, to get the 2.5% value of it, and then give it. Or just give that, maybe that earring is there or thereabouts, uh, either hitting that 2.5% or above, and then she could just give that earring. So those are basically the two only options. Either you sell a section of the gold and then give the 2.5% worth, or just give that small section of the gold, which is equivalent to or higher than 2.5% worth. But then you have the issue of, does a woman actually even have to give zakat on gold? That is her personal usage. It's one thing having gold that you've got stored up because you're going to sell it when it hits a good mark. And if you're telling us the figures are 3,000, that looks like it's actually gone up. It's a decent mark. But if somebody is saving gold to purposely with that intention of selling it to make a profit, when the money goes up on it, then definitely zakat is due on it. No difference. But if a woman has got gold for personal use, she's got no intention of selling it. It's a personal goal she got when she got married, she got it when she got uh, this event, that event, gifts here, gifts from her parents, mother here, there. Her personal goal, she's not going to give it to anybody. She's keeping it. It's there, she wears it now and again. The other occasion here, the other occasion there, just personal usage gold. Does she even have to give zakat on that or not? If you say yes, and she's in the scenario we just described, then eventually all her gold is just going to run out up until the level of it gets below the nisab, then there's going to be no more zakat. She's going to have to keep giving it every year until she 
lands below the nisab, then she gets to keep that. And the scholars, they said, that couldn't be the case. She has all of this gold, maybe 20, 30, 40,000 pounds worth of gold. And it's all going to be given away over the years until she has just that small percentage left under the nisab. She can keep that because now there won't be any zakat on it. So some scholars say, no, that can't be. And there are narrations, obviously, to back it up that she doesn't have to give zakat on gold that is for her personal use. And it is, it is a very strong opinion. It is a very strong opinion. But the other opinion, which also has a very good amount of weight on it because of the ayat of the Qur'an and the threat in them for those who uh, make their gold into treasures and do not give the zakat upon it, etc. That you still do have to give it in that circumstance. But that is another topic uh, which uh, it's covered in Bulugh al-Maram in those kinds of books of fiqh. The last question here then, do you have to pay zakat on a student loan? Student loans in of themselves are impermissible anyway just as a precursor, they are haram anyway. The student loans and the way that they are organized, they have interest on them, despite everybody who's going to tell me they don't. They do. Because you have to pay them back at the rate of inflation. You have to pay them back at the rate of inflation. I'm sure that is the way it is. You have to pay them back at the rate of inflation, which according to the economics is not considered interest it's the rate of inflation the roi different type of thing but islamically rate of inflation it is interest if i now give you 10 pounds or make it simple i give you a pound to borrow you borrow a pound off me so you're in debt to me for a pound today in 2019 i give it to you in 30 years, 40 years, if Allah gives us life, I pull you up one day, bump into you, and I say, where's my pound from 40 years ago? So you say, okay, khalas, yeah, I'll give it to you now. So you give me the pound back. In 40 years from now, that one pound, what am I going to be able to buy with it? Right now with that pound, just about in some shops, you can still buy a can of Coke for a pound. In 40 years time, it's going to be more like three, four, five, a tenner for a can of Coke. For those who are elder, or elder, I mean, at least maybe around the 30s, you'll remember maybe 20 years ago when you were kids and you used to go to Greg's and you could give them a 50p coin and get change from a cheese and onion pasty. That's the truth. You could go to Greg's, give them a 50p coin, a 50p coin, and you get change back. And you get the pasty. Now you have to give two or three 50p coins. Three of them. And that just about catches it, I think. 140, 150 or something. Three 50p coins now. So if somebody had borrowed 50p of me 20, 30 years ago, in those days, 50p was worth a decent amount. I could get a pasty with it in those days. Now, 20 years later, if that brother comes back and says, okay, here's the 50p I borrowed from you 30 years ago. I think, excellent. I walk into Greg's and I can't get anything anymore. That's what they 
claim and explain briefly as the rate of inflation. They say right now the 50p 30 years ago is worth £1.50. That's what it's worth now because now it takes £1.50 to get that same amount of goods that you could get for 50p 30 years ago. So they say that's just a fair rate of inflation. If I pay you back 50p 30 years later, you can't even get anything with it now. So I should pay you back 150 because that is the equivalent of what the 50p was worth when I borrowed it off you 30 years ago. That's what they say rate of inflation. If you borrow 10 grand off them now, they say, look, when you pay it back in 40 years time, that 10 grand is worth 14,000. It's worth 18,000. That's the justification which seems to the one who may not understand it logical. But Islamically that is interest. If I now say to that guy, your 50p you borrowed 30 years ago, what am I going to do with it now? To buy a pasty now and 150, give me 150 now. Haram! That is interest. I can't say to him that's inflation, that's this, that's that. Money to money has to be like for like. Gold to gold, silver to silver. He borrowed 50p of me 30 years ago, he's going to give me 50p now. You cannot add and it's the value of it and this and that, that is haram. So these loans are, as far as I understand, to be repaid upon the rate of inflation and the rate of inflation is Islamically interest. So they are haram in the first place. Do you have to give zakat on them is actually an interesting question. Do you have to give zakat on them? Now that you've taken it, which is haram, and therefore you should get rid of it as soon as possible, repay it as quickly as possible, you have to repay it. Uh, I know about all of the rules, you have to earn a certain amount, and, and people say, can I take it? I'm never going to earn that amount. That, you can't do that type of thing. You can't say, I'm never going to earn that amount, I'm, never, I'm always going to stay below, and this and that. You can't make these types of justifications. It's a haram contract. You can't take them, so you got to get rid of it, pay it off, get it off your shoulders. But if you've got it right now, you got 10,000 loan, so you're above the nisab, you've had it for a year, is zakat due on it or not? It is an interesting question because you can't just say, well, it's haram for you to have taken it in the first place, then the rulings of Islam don't apply upon it. Not necessarily, always. Because as they say in the books of fiqh and usul al-fiqh, al-jiha munfakka. They call it Al-Jiha Munfakka. That these are two separate issues in of themselves. One is the issue of the haramness of the loan in the first place. That's one issue. The other issue is, but you've got the nisab amount of money in your possession. You own it. How you got it is a separate issue. Do you have to give zakat on it now? The example they give in the, they give in the books of fiqh is, imagine you go and steal a thawb. You go somewhere and you steal some clothes. You steal them. Haram, of course, major sin. But then afterwards, you put those clothes on and mashallah, you're going to pray. So now you're praying in the clothes that you stole. Is your prayer legitimate and valid or not? They say, yes, it's valid because the two issues are separate. You having stolen the clothes is one issue that you're going to be held accountable upon. Right now, have you fulfilled the conditions of the prayer? Covered your aura, etc. with those clothes? You have. So your prayer is valid. Even though the clothes you wore were illegitimate. But they were illegitimate is a separate issue. You have now 
fulfilled the conditions of the prayer. So it could be, and I don't know, we have to ask the scholars, but it could be that they may use that example on it. That if you've got it now and it's haram and you need to get rid of it, but you haven't been able to and a year's passed on it, maybe you have to. But then again, the other argument would be that this is hadith. The mal is hadith. Allah only accepts the good. So that is something that I don't know. We'll have to uh, investigate further. Go on, last question. Pension schemes, there are so many details and contracts you have to look into with pension schemes. But as a general thing, a pension scheme can be permissible depending on how it's done and the details and the T's and C's as they say but it can potentially be permissible it all just depends on that company how they do it where they invest your money often the pension schemes they take cash and they invest it in things and then return to you afterwards where are they investing your money there are details to it which you have to look into carefully and work out from these details on this contract is there anything which goes against Islam if not potentially some of these pensions can be okay but it's all case per case we have to round off there tonight then inshallah next week after Isha as usual make sure you let everybody know I don't think it's been on, mentioned on the weekend thing next week after Isha it's on inshallah